everyone. Welcome to our fourth installment of FlexCast, our faculty learning exchange podcast. Uh, we are joined by a special guest today, Dr. Valentin Fonsom. He's a professor in general surgery, the interim chief for the Division of Surgical Oncology and the General Surgery Residency Program Director here at the College of Medicine, Tucson. And as always, I'm joined by um, my very special colleagues, Dr. Mari Ricker and Dr. Amber Rice. Um, so we talk a lot of, on this podcast about topics that are related to faculty development, specifically in academic medicine. Um, and given the movements for social justice and, and the issues that have been raised in our country and our society recently, we wanted to have a conversation about race. Um, and, and what that means to us as physicians, as educators, uh, and as people taking care of, of society and, and our community. So um, we chose a couple articles today to focus on. The first is called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. And the second is called Breaking the Silence, Time to Talk About Race and Racism by David Acosta and Kupiri Ackerman Barger. And I thought that these were both very relevant, even though they were published several years ago. Unfortunately, this is still an issue that um, we seem to kind of bring up anew every, every you know, whenever something happens and, and we're sort of reawakened to this issue that we really are not addressing effectively. I'll just start by opening it up um, to you, Val. How did these articles, did they impact you at all? Anything that resonated with you or um, any issues that really um, come to the surface when you were reading these? So uh, first of all, thank you, Ali, for having me on, on, on this uh, um, podcast. I, I think uh, uh, this is a, a very important uh, uh, forum, especially as it pertains to faculty development. And so um, it's a great effort. I just want to thank you for even doing this and, and inviting me to the show. So, yeah, these were really interesting articles. And I think the two articles actually captures uh, um, a lot of the, and addresses a lot of the questions we have right now as it pertains to social inequality and uh, race and racism. and. Um, and also addresses some of the things that we need to do to ad address some of these uh, pressing social issues. Um, the one article, Breaking the Silence, I think it's a very important article, and especially as it, it, um, it deals with a lot of things that as healthcare providers, um, we uh, impact us directly. And so I, I, I can, after uh, having been involved with a lot of uh, uh, both nationally and locally um, committees and, and organizations dealing with uh, uh, diversity and inclusion, I, I honestly think that uh, it's time for us to speak up about race, okay? You can imagine that being in these committees and at times even leading some of those com these committees, we don't talk about race. We bring up other things. We'll talk about, uh, we, we will talk about um, uh, including women, but when it comes to talking about race issues, everybody's silent and uncomfortable. 
I am actually uncomfortable sitting in those committees and talking about race, and which is very interesting. So I, I and then I ref, I've reflected on this a lot. And I was in South Africa. I go to South Africa pretty often uh, because our residents actually rotate there. And the one thing that struck me, which is completely different between South Africa and the United States, in South Africa where they had apartheid for several decades, and where the uh, majority black race was suppressed by a minority white race, just about 5% of them, they actually talk about race. And so it was a really interesting finding for me. I'm in South Africa, and most of the people around me are actually white people. And the conversation about righting the wrong of the past was always going on. And then I come to the United States and where we had a deep-seated problem with racism, but nobody talks about it. And I was just thinking back in South Africa, even though the progress is slow, they're going, they're going somewhere because they're having this constant, uncomfortable conversation all the time. So slowly they're making progress. So 200 years or more after slavery, we're still not making any progress. We think we make a little bit of progress and then we backtrack. And then the issues that are happening in 2020, it's almost a reflection of what happened in the 1960s. And so even though we've made some progress, um, there's still a whole lot uh, to be made. And I, and I truly believe that is because of the silence. We're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. And, and just like uh, uh, Martin Luther King said, uh, so that our lives actually begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And he actually follows up by saying, of, um, in the end, we will actually remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I cannot even begin to tell you how important staying silent is not the way to go because silence is just complacent. Why do we why do we think it's difficult to talk about race? Um, what what makes it hard? I think um, the majority of the times, the people that bring up uh, the discussion about race is mostly people of color, and I can tell you that it's very uncomfortable to to bring that up. Um, and I can give you an example. For uh, several years ago, um, I was at a meeting at the American College of Surgeons, and there was, uh, I was a discussant in a, a, a paper, and that was looking at uh, disparities in surgeons in the healthcare system in the United States. And, it was just so sobering to see that um, uh, African-Americans make 12.5% of the national population. The number of surgeons was like 5% and actually decreasing over the years. Same with Hispanics. And after that uh, presentation, and I met with one of my friends of blessed memory now, and, and uh, she and I decided that, you know what, these are some of the issues we really need to tackle, especially looking at surgical residency training programs, the minorities in those programs, and try to create a pipeline. 
And so we said, okay, the first thing we need to do is approach the APDS, the Association of Program Directors in Surgery, and see if we can start that conversation. Now, let me tell you why it's difficult to talk about race. So we approached the president of, of, um, of the APDS at that time. This is somebody who is all about diversity and inclusion, who has done a whole lot about diversity and inclusion, but, and is a friend. But we approached this person and we said, hey, I'm not gonna say his name. Maybe we should start having this conversation at the national level. And his first reaction was like, whoa, 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 I love black people. You know, when I was, uh, when I was in college, I was the only white guy who went across the street and played basketball with uh, the black people. And, the, you know, so you can think about somebody who is actually through diversity. That was his reaction. So we had to pull back and re-strategize. You know why? He felt like we accused him mm -hmm. of not being very inclusive. So in the background now, we have to re-strategize how to bring this up without sounding like you're accusing people of being racist. Well, but Peggy brings up two points in that first article yeah. that are like very similar to the, the thing that you're talking about. She brings up the fact that this idea of talking about race is made taboo in our society. So your, your contrast between the way they speak about it in South Africa versus here, it's, it's just a taboo topic. Right. So it's not only taboo to bring up, but then also the, the, those of us who have the, the privilege of being able to speak up about it, are the ones that don't bring it up. And we inherently have the privilege to be able to speak about it in a way where we don't get criticized. We don't get criticized for bringing up race the way we would if we were people of color. And then, but at the same time, it's so taboo that that's, you know, those are the barriers that you're speaking of, right? And this right. article, she wrote this in 1988, you know, about the, the taboo nature of speaking about race and it's still taboo today. I would also add that I think in medicine, in general, we don't do vulnerability very well. And this is a very vulnerable conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, I would say even coming, I feel very comfortable with all three of you having this conversation right now. Um, for me, as a, a white a woman who is white, <laughs> who is coming to have this conversation, um, I feel safe here and then thinking, well, this, this conversation is going to be podcasted. Um, I want to make sure I get it right. And I think that's, um, in preparing for this, I was really struggling with that. Um, you know what? I'm not going to get it right. We need to have these conversations. We need to model um, being honest when we don't get it right, looking into ourselves as to why we haven't gotten it right for a long time. And um, that vulnerability is something that we are not, um, is not really modeled in medicine very much. And um, this takes a lot of courage to step out of, do things. What I read in this is we need to do things very differently than the way we've been doing them because having trainings and having online modules and um, things like that are, have, you know, this article was written in 2017, mm -hmm. it hasn't changed. So we need to step out of our comfort zone. Um, so I'm really, I guess I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation to mm -hmm. start.
yeah, recognizing that it's uncomfortable and being able to continue to have an uncomfortable conversation or something that feels uncomfortable, but not letting that stop you from having the conversation. Right. I think it's clearly an uncomfortable conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and some of the challenges that people of color have in bringing this up is that then you come across as placing blame or accusing people. Um, just bringing that topic up means you're accusing somebody of racism, and which is not true. So now you just sit behind and just talk about it amongst yourself. And that doesn't help. And then you don't want to be considered as a troublemaker. And you would see that a lot of people talk about sitting at the table and the only way most people of color feels that for you to get to sit at that table you have to not rock the boat you have to just play along and that's a problem so um so you don't bring things up that are controversial you don't bring things up that make people uncomfortable because people don't want, we're human beings, people don't want to be around people that make them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And unless you have a whole lot of emotional intelligence and unless you, you're a true leader, then it doesn't matter to you. But we're human beings and most people feel uncomfortable about certain things, especially if they're taboo. And so that's the, and then there's always the fear of reprisal, right? You bring something up that might prevent you from getting promoted that might prevent you from getting to sit at the table. And, and that's real, that's real. In the Unpacking the um, Invisible Knapsack article, she enumerates this list of things that she came to realize are part of a privilege just based on her skin color, you know, unearned privilege and, and things that she can do that um, people of color are not able to do and don't and, and have to really be um, intentional and mindful and um, Val what you just said about you know I can bring up one one of them says is I, I'm pretty sure that an argument with a colleague of another race is more likely to jeopardize his or her chances for advancement than to jeopardize mine and I that speaks to what you just said you know that you put yourself out there when when a when a person of color brings these issues up in a room full of of white people that they're going to the, the concern for being targeted or um, negative impact to the progression of their career or their reputation, I think is, is so profound. And um, I, I don't think that we don't think about that, you know. I know. And so I actually loved her, uh, the list of 50 things. I, th I thought that was impressive that she actually spent some time actually thinking through all of that. And I was just reading through, I was that, wow, she gets it because, um, and I think one of the biggest um, thing I would say is white privilege is having the benefit of the doubt. Mm. That's the, that's the it, having people give you the benefit of the doubt is the biggest white privilege, right? So you know nobody, um, you know, so many things that. You know, if I fail as a black man in doing something, I don't get a whole lot of chances to fail. And so that means that instead of putting 150 
instead of putting 100% to succeed, I have to put 150 or 200 because it's not only about me. Mm -hmm. I have an entire race on my shoulder. Meanwhile, my white colleagues, they don't have to. They don't, they, they don't, they're not, they, they're seen as an individual and not like representing a race. And so um, that's uh, uh, not having the opportunity to fail. It's an incredible burden. And which just means that you spend so much time preparing and making sure that all your dots uh, uh, and all your, your eyes are dotted and all your T's are crossed and there's just no room for that. And it, it's such a burden that uh, most of our white colleagues don't even know. Um, and and uh, not having to worry that if you're in a position of, of influence, for example, that you got there just because of affirmative action and not because you're qualified to get there. Something that most of my colleagues, white friends, don't they don't have to deal with that. But then you, and the first thing somebody looks at you in a position of influence, they're like, oh, he probably, he or she probably got there because you know, you know, they're lowering the bar, and so that we want to kind of create this inclusive environment. And as insulting as that is, it's just the reality of it that you have to deal with that. Um, and and uh, but but more importantly, I. Um, um, so I, you know, as I reflect on like uh, being a program director in surgery and having been a program director for, for eight years, and I look at uh, a spectrum of, of my residents uh, in the last eight years, and I look at the minority residents, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics especially, and it gives me tremendous pause to think that if I wasn't around, a whole lot of them might not have graduated from a, from a program. And that gives me a whole lot of concern and pause. And not because people were targeting them per se, it's just that they didn't give them the benefit of the doubt. So if you have a, I always say this, if you have a stellar resident of color, they're just the same as a stellar white resident. If you have a struggling resident of color, they're not the same as a struggling white resident. Mm -hmm. That's where we have to focus our energy more. So because they're not giving the benefit of the doubt. So the struggling resident of color, everything is amplified. The struggling white resident, you know, they, they give them benefit of the doubt. And that's absolute white privilege. And it's not only about residents, it's not about, it's just the whole, our whole existence. You have no room to struggle. You have no room to struggle. You have to always be on top of the game all the time. Well, I wonder if we could talk a, a little bit about um, speaking up. And I think, um, you know, hearing what you're saying, I think that is, and in her article, one way to use that white privilege in a positive way to have the person that's speaking up not always be the person of color. Um, and I, that was something that I really took a lot from this article about all of the barriers as to why faculty don't speak up when they see things happen that are racist. And um, I'd be curious about all of your thoughts on that as well. So um, speaking up is really important and especially uh, 
speaking up by people that are not minorities. I think it's really important. If you look back, go back, the only reason why, one of the most important reasons why the civil rights movement succeeded back in the 60s is because there were a lot of white people involved in the civil rights movement. And uh, so one of some of the strategies that we've used nationally in some of the organizations that I belong to has been to call up a lot of people that don't look like my, that are not minorities. And we've had a significant amount of success in the APDS, in the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. And the reason why, because we have white champions. These are people who are out in the front, true believers speaking up and making changes. And it's strategic. We know that we can be so angry about all the things that are going on, but the only way to make change is to actually really be strategic about it. And is to get allies, is to get people. You don't want to be the only person. It's a burden to be the only person speaking up all the time. You think that you can look at your white girl and say, please, can you just speak up for me before I speak up, <laughs> right? And so, so you're right, uh, uh, Mary, it's important to have allies who are true believers that speak up. Now, leadership is also really important. The intentionality of making change is critical. And that also really is a burden that leaders have to make. We've seen great changes happen and correction of all the social injustices when we have leaders that believe and try to make change. And we've seen those changes disappear when those leaders no longer exist or not, not in position of power. So we have to try to make that institutionalized in such a way that it really shouldn't depend on the leader. But unfortunately, uh, it's all about leadership until it's solidified. And so, yes, speaking up is important. And why do some people don't speak up? Um, again, for all the reasons uh, that I've mentioned before, but I mean, think about a resident and a faculty walk into a room, a, a, a resident of color walks into a room and a patient makes a disparaging remark and the faculty doesn't shut that down right away and correct that right away. That's absolutely wrong i mean that re the faculty doesn't even know what he or she had done to that resident mm -hmm. okay it's worse than the comment that the patient might have made because that resident feels like wow look at me here i'm so defenseless and there's this power differential between that resident and that attending and the attending says nothing, which means that they're complicit. It's even worse. There was a quote in the article that said, um, the faculty often take the privileged path of least resistance and avoid or ignore the topic of race altogether. And, I, and that, I think, really, we keep coming back to that, that, that the ability to ignore that is really that privilege. Yeah, so, I thought a little bit about this after reading it, trying to think of, of what would prevent me or what stops me from saying things and and some of it is similarly to you know how a, a person of color might be seen in a different way just for their color i think women often are seen in a different way for being a, for being women um and being accused of being overly sensitive or overly you know and all of that being attributed to my gender instead of 
instead of it being that it was truly my right to feel offended by something, it's, well, you're overly sensitive because you're a woman. And so I think we also get trained, at least in, from my perspective, you know, me personally have been, have received this training also to stay silent about things so that you don't get perceived as being sensitive or, you know, bitchy or, you know, whatever people want to, you know, call women who are, you know, speak up too much um, or complain too much. And so it's perceived very different. So I think for me, having to put that aside and say, you know, and try to separate that from, from recognizing my ability to still speak out against racial disparities or, or things that are, you know, not necessarily related to my gender, but are, you know, would impact somebody else. One thing that I have um, been trying to unpack is how our culture of medicine is, is a, you know, if you have sort of a segregationalist or segregation versus assimilation, our culture is assimilation. And we're all trying to be like the one, the one style of communication that doctors are all just like this. And we're attributing professionalism with that sort of niceness of the doctor that doesn't rock the boat, as you said. And I, I think we're in a time where we're redefining what that, prof that that professionalism is not just making things smooth, but really that professionalism also can include standing up, even if it makes people uncomfortable, which is very different from, I think, the way all of us were trained. I can think of a time, I think it was about seven years ago when I had a um, African-American resident and I were rounding in front of the resident and I, the patient said, I don't want to have a black doctor. I won't have her take care of me anymore. And um, I've gone over this scene many times in my mind because I don't think I handled it very well. And we stepped out of the room and I didn't address it with the patient, but I asked her, I said, I asked the resident, what do you want, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to take this patient and assign it to somebody else? Do you want me to, like, how should we handle this? And I feel, I, I still feel like I, I didn't handle this well. And in hindsight, I wish I had one just spoken up immediately to the patient and told them this was not okay. And in putting that burden on the resident, I then I gave her even, she has the burden of being, having a patient act racist toward her. And now she has the burden of trying to figure out how she should move forward. And I have gone through that scene so many times in my mind because I, I think that there were so many opportunities there to, to speak up for the resident and also to, to show that, um, that leadership and protect her and know that she doesn't have to um, have to experience this. Mary, that's a really great example of, of what we're talking about. And, and it's all a learning process. And during these conversations uh, after, um, with all the social changes and, and alertness going on, I think there's a lot of people that are doing deep reflections like that. And I think that, and that's very hopeful that out of this conversation, something positive can come out of it. It, it might never be 100%. It would never be 100%. We can move 20 to 30% from where we were before. I still think that's a whole lot of progress. And just having these conversations like that is, is really important. I, I have had patients like that. I had a, a patient uh, 
did the same thing with my residency. She, after her surgery, she woke up. I had a black resident, a black student, a black chief resident, a black student. And she woke up and they're the ones taking care of her. And she came to clean like, I woke up, I thought I was in Africa. <laughs> I was like, you know, and that conversation, that got shut down right away. And, and not in a, not in a, uh, in a way, it was just more of an education of the of the of the of the, of the patient, and just and, and believe it or not, she's probably one of my favorite patients now because she got to understand. Um, she got to know uh, people are just ignorant, and they might need a little bit of education. I think the worst thing to do is to actually lose an opportunity to educate somebody and instead make an enemy out of that. So every single opportunity we, we have to educate somebody, I can tell you that patient who said that you're resident, they're just ignorant. They're just ignorant. And so maybe that was an opportunity to actually educate them. And a person like that, once they get educated, they're better ambassadors of change than somebody who uh, feels like they're more liberal, they're more accepting, but they're actually worse because when push comes to shove, they switch into that privilege. So uh, those people are actually uh, better ambassadors of change if we educate them better. Yeah, I think that sometimes it's a fear of, afraid of what the conversation will turn into. So you've mentioned your conversations that have led to people becoming defensive when you, you bring up the idea of, of racial disparities and and then they get defensive. And so I think that, you know, oftentimes we are afraid that we're gonna make people feel ashamed and then they'll get defensive and we'll, you know, so, you know, we're trying not to, we're also trying to be sensitive and not shame anybody, but sometimes it's difficult to know how to have that conversation with somebody in that moment without making them feel ashamed and then turning this into like a defensive argument about something. So, I mean, I think that's one of the other barriers to speaking up is, or being afraid of the aftermath or afraid of what, how that person might take it or not wanting to hurt their feelings also for something think, they might not have recognized that they even did because this, you know, sort of unrecognized bias that people have. I think that's, that's a really important thing you just said, uh, Amber, that was discussed in this article about educating people. You don't, you don't send people out there to talk about these things if they don't have some kind of education. So that's why faculty development about these things is so important. And, and um, you know, I love that article because, you know, you know they clearly said that um, learning about cultural sensitivities and also about um, implicit bias, so unconscious bias is not enough and truly not enough, right? But I think it's a place to start. And cultural sensitivity, we can never be um, um, culturally competent about anybody else's culture because we just, especially if you grow up in a different culture than the people you interact with, you can never be very competent. Maybe we might be a little bit more culturally dexterous where we can manage another person's culture and the whole concept of cultural assimilation as opposed to cultural acceptance is is another thing that brings a lot of strife okay we should not try to always assimilate people in the culture i i'm a firm believer that you know the more diverse an environment the better it is 
Okay, and I see this whole concept of, I see some people try to do uniformity. I like, no, you want people who think differently because it's even better. You don't want people who all think the same way because that's not really good. So there's cultural sense. And then another thing is unconscious bias. We all have unconscious bias because we have different backgrounds. We grew up differently. And so it's okay to have this unconscious bias, but you have to recognize it. I think the most important thing is to recognize it. I think the most dangerous individuals are people who say, I have no bias. Okay, then that's a huge problem. If you think you don't have it, you're more dangerous than somebody who uh, have an obvious bias, but they recognize it. So we have different backgrounds and we have different biases. We just have to make sure that we don't use our biases in a negative way. Yeah, you talk about how damaging it is and to, especially for those of us who are educators and um, supposed to set an example, how damaging it could be. Like you mentioned that there are times I remember not being spoken up for in similar situations. And I remember it, it was, it hurt my feelings that I felt like this person didn't stand up for me when a patient was being disparaging. And so it's, it's obvious that if we don't take the steps to do more than just disapprove of something, but to take the next step, which is to try to correct something um, so that we can show our trainees that this is how the conversation should go and how they handle those situations, teaching them how to handle situations. And, um, you know, even our, our, our residents who are not people of color, teaching them to have those conversations so that when they go out in the real world and they go out to get their first job, that they, they stick up for their colleagues and people that work in their department and they're able to, you know, so it's setting an example all around. And um, so it is really important to not just be disapproving, but to, but to try to say something, even if you mess it up, try to say something. Oh, I was just going to say one thing that um, struck me, a, a quote from the um, article said that um, health professions faculty are not even formally trained to teach, let, let alone trained to teach about race. Mm -hmm. And I found that um, that that really struck me as, as a truth, you know, where we teach how we were taught often because we, we weren't taught to teach any better. Um, and so I think we're already uncomfortable, some of us, or, you know, just sort of making things up as we go, as we teach. And then to also then think about having these, um, you know, uncomfortable conversations and being put in positions where, you know, we have to teach others about race when we're not even in, not even comfortable with it. I think that also is a daunting task. And so as somebody who's obviously interested in faculty development, I've been thinking about what we can do how do we teach faculty how to do this? And I mean, um, there's curriculum out there and you know, a lot of people are, are talking about it, uh, but I just, I wonder how we, how we reach people. And I mean, we know that when we hold events and discussions, where the people that show up are often the choir. We know that these people are engaged and interested and, and they're going to be the ones that are you know already allies or already advocates but then how do we reach people that have not yet been reached you know how do we how do we um, engage people in this conversation when when as you said you know val some people get so defensive and are already you know um, um, unwilling to talk about things i think that's what you said val like this has to be 
um, a policy and an institutional um, change that doesn't make it depend on the people that are in the room. So, um, you know, I know there's very little that's required, but I'm sort of saying this needs to be a part of everyone's education, not just those who are interested. And, you know, making, um, I, there were a couple of things talking about the development needs to be deliberate in addressing race, racism, and white privilege. And faculty have to actively pursue skills, like you were speaking earlier, to have these, these really challenging conversations. And it's gonna ha take time, but I, I think what the conversation we've been going toward is that this needs to be embedded into everyone's training and not just um, for those who are interested in it. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I honestly, I'm very hopeful because we're having this conversation now and even in within some departments, that conversation is going on nationally. There's a whole lot of uh, that conversation going on. As uncomfortable as it is, you know, but people are talking. I think that's a, a step in the right direction. I I think for uh, uh, when it pertains to faculty development, I think we should at least. I know we have unconscious uh, bias training and modules for that. I know um, we also um, have other things that. Uh, other trainings that are uh, helpful to the faculty to recognize some of these uh, disparities. But I, I think that, um, and we have committees that talk about this and advise the deans uh, about this. Um, we, I think we should start by actually uh, making some of these educational materials a little bit more mandatory. And as, as much as I hate to have uh, people will be forced to do certain things because you, uh, I don't like to be forced to do anything. Uh, but, you know, we might actually move the bar a little bit. You know, we have 20, 30 more percent more people buy into an idea of trying to make change is much better than having 5%. So there has to be some kind of institutional uh, mandate on on certain educational uh, materials and requirements, and we can start from that. And but then we have to put a whole lot more effort in having these conversations, as uncomfortable as it is. I think that I'm just looking in and uh, within the departments, and like in our departments, we have a book club now. We're looking at you know, social inequalities and racism, and we talk about it openly. There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable about it, who like had no idea how to deal with this, but people are talking about it. This, you can see them starting, to, uh, starting from a place of being uncomfortable to now actually engaging in that conversation and, and learning about things that they, 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 they have no idea about. For a, for a white mother, who has a son that steps out in the morning and heading out to school, and even if they behave badly, their mom has no worry that they might end up being killed. None, zero. That the chances of that, but every black mother thinks about that whenever their son steps out. So things like that, that the white mother's like, really? Why, why do you have to worry about that? But, you know, conversations like that, like the things that, the underrepresented uh, people of color go through every day, the extra burden of dealing with that that most white people don't know. So I think it's a, it's a conversation that has to be had no matter how uncomfortable. Or the, 
a resident of color, especially, who deals with all these little microaggressions every day. And they have to deal with that and then deal with the vagaries of being a resident. It's an extra burden that uh, white colleagues don't have to deal with, you know. The, and then the, the whole point of being that one or a black resident in a program where everybody looks different, you know, and just dealing with that, um, um, it's, it's, it's not easy for those residents to deal with. And it's something that we have to consciously think about every day when we see one or two of those residents struggling and not just say, you know, they're no good, they're not competent and stuff like that. You don't know the extra burden that they carry. Yeah, and beyond the beyond the conversation about faculty development, just thinking about the, the healthcare disparities related to the same biases that you know people carry um, create not only difficulty in learning environments, and but those things also translate to healthcare disparities across the whole country. So, I mean, the conversation goes so much more beyond, or the impacts go so much more beyond a a training program or, or a, you know, faculty relations, but, you know, also how, how the entire power structure, you know, affects all of healthcare in America. And that's, that's very true because um, when we see systemic racism, um, that leads to a group of people being marginalized. And then because they're marginalized, uh, you know, the, economic potential is also reduced. And because of that is lack of education. And because of that lack of education, there's lack of access to healthcare. And you can see it go all the way. So a kid in the south side of Tucson with limited resources in a poor uh, uh, environment with bad, not so great schools, and their chances of succeeding is so limited. And so, um, I, I want to actually think that and really strongly commend the admissions committee at the University of A. I've been on that committee now for four years. I have never served in any committee, both nationally and locally, that is that gets it. And I actually I, I see them totally doing a holistic um, um, evaluations of candidates that are applying uh, to to a program and not lowering the bar. I, I think that's the one thing that is always very annoying when we feel like for us to diversify, we have to lower the bar, and and that's very insulting. And we don't want that because, um, and, but we see a committee that actually looks into other things like, well, this student has a GPA of three point four. I, but they were working during that time, they were taking care of their parents, they had jobs they had to go to, as opposed to some kid who might have a GPA of 3.9, and they don't have to do any of that stuff, right? It doesn't mean that because you have that privilege, it's a bad thing. No, of course not, okay? So it's not your fault if you don't have to have a job because your parents can take care of that. That's absolutely not your fault. And But what I'm trying to say is that there should be consideration of that person who might not have a 3.9 GPA, but had a job. And you know they have resilience. You know, even medical school, and they don't have to do all of that. Maybe they might even score better. 
So again, and I'm just so glad that committee actually looks into all of that. And I think uh, of all the committees that, of the, that have actually participated, both nationally and locally, it's probably one of the committees that get it. And I see them making a whole lot of strides. But yeah, all of those things should be considered as we look into uh, this because it impacts healthcare down the road completely. We don't have enough medical students and uh, residents uh, from diverse background that also impacts the community. There's a lot of studies that have shown that people of color would love to have physicians that are of color because they feel like they understand their background, where they come from. I, I tell you this, I, and I always tell this story, I'm in the room with a Hispanic patient. My patients love me to death. They think like I'm the greatest doctor ever. But then I'm in there with a Hispanic resident and I see an extra light in their eyes when they see a Hispanic resident who speaks Spanish, who can communicate with them. I, and I was like, wow. I mean, they're like this extra spark in extra, you know, you know, connection just because that's a Hispanic uh, resident, a Hispanic doctor. And I get even more information out of them that I that I knew. And this is an English-speaking Hispanic patient. It's not like somebody who speaks only Spanish, but it just feels this extra connection to somebody who they feel understands truly where they come from. So we need we need. That's the reason why it's so important that we get more underrepresented minorities into medicine in kind of blondest disparities because that Hispanic resident or that African-American resident or doctor can communicate better to a Hispanic patient who doesn't want to have a colonoscopy because they feel like, yeah, it's not a manly thing to do, but they can get and say, I know what you, where you're coming from, you need a colonoscopy and they're gonna get it. But it would be hard for me to make that connection with that person. So again, so that's why, and that impacts public health significantly so that that person doesn't show up with a stage four disease as opposed to a stage one disease. So all of this ties into um, uh, in how we, how we address racism and also um, uh, how we address opening up the uh, uh, opening up access to underrepresented minorities to uh, medical schools and to a residency has a long-term impact on our overall population health. All right, so I think, uh, you know, bringing up unconscious bias again is actually really important because um, the only way we can truly move forward in discussing uh, race and racism and how it impacts uh, our healthcare system is to recognize the fact that we all have different backgrounds and, and different biases. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have ever watched a TED talk by uh, Chimamanda Adichie, and she talks about the danger of a single story. And, and one of her quotes was that, this is how you create a single story. You show people as one thing, 
as only one thing over and over again. And that is what they become. And so the single story then creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is that it's not that they are untrue, but they are incomplete. And they make one story become the only story. So that's how we develop unconscious bias because nobody's born with, uh, like Nelson Mandela said, nobody's born to hate another person because of the color of their skin or their background or their religion. People must learn how to hate somebody. Now, but if you can learn how to hate, people can actually be taught how to love somebody because love actually comes more naturally in the human heart than it, its opposite. So again, it's just, that's how we develop unconscious biases. And so if you see uh, a patient, you walk into a room and you see a patient um, that is uh, a patient of color and they look a little disheveled, your biases go up already. As opposed to if you walk into that room and it's a white patient and they might look a little disheveled, but it doesn't, you don't start attributing things to that white patient as opposed to that uh, person of color. And you can't blame yourself for those unconscious biases because society has given you that single story of that person. But what we can do is to recognize the fact that there are more stories to that individual than that single story that you've heard over and over. And that's the only way we can begin to break down those um, um, stereotypes and develop and build a different story for every individual. And it's the same thing with our residents. It's the same thing with our faculty. And it's not a single story. And we have to recognize that. And then as we, as we build um, and develop uh, um, programs for our faculty development, unconscious bias should be one of the things that we really have to work on and not just um, taking another test. Unfortunately, it might involve some kind of social uh, engineering, but we can deal with that. Every little step that we do in our own small sphere to push forward a more uh, accepting uh, faculty and resident body is a step in the right direction and that ultimately impacts uh, um, uh, overall population health. Makes me think of pretty great resources I saw on the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, our medical students actually, they had a summer reading project to read one of the topics that are on there, but they have some really incredible resources um, compiled in a talking about race um, section, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but there's a video by um, Dr. Robin DeAngelo about deconstructing white privilege. And um, something she said really struck me where um, she's a white woman um, who grew up in a pretty, um, what she describes as segregation, which I hadn't heard it that way before, where you know she had been surrounded by people that looked like her. And there were very few people that didn't look like her. And um, she was you know, um, reflecting back on her life and 
realizing that um, she had educators, parents who loved her, mentors, all of these people kind of helping her along her path. And not one of them ever raised an issue that she was not getting the perspective of people that weren't like her and that there was any loss in that. And I found that so profound when she said that because it's true. I mean, we can go our whole lives, some of us, and it, this is one of the privileges that um, Peggy speaks about, but we can go our whole lives if we wanted to, um, or even if, I mean, some of us can do that even if we don't even try, just surrounded by people who are like us and never realize that we're missing out on a whole, you know, richness of, of culture, of diversity, of people's stories, like you said, Val, that um, I think is a huge loss. and and some of us don't even know that. Yeah, it's about having a curiosity to want to know. Um, and that's, I think where people are just starting now is starting to have the, the curiosity about the topic of race. And, and I think that opens up a lot of opportunities for people to learn. I have found a different resource, Allie, called Justice in June. Have you seen this website? So it's called Justice in June, and it was actually a website put together by a college student. Um, and you go in and it's a whole collection of readings and articles, and you can select how much time you have in a day. I think there's like 10 minutes, 25 minutes, or an hour a day. And so if you pick that, how much time you have in a day, it'll give you like a whole calendar of all kinds of articles and readings and, um, you know, things written by people of color and things written about race and, or, you know, so it's actually a really interesting website. It's got a ton of, you know, literary, it's all sort of literary based, but very interesting books and topics. And, you know, that was where sort of I had, you know, realized that, you know, having the curiosity so that you don't have this story that you tell yourself about people, like, like, like Val said, this, you know, you tell yourself a story, but recognizing that this story that this is the story that I tell myself about somebody else or about, about a situation instead of um, taking the time or effort to be curious about, you know, what, what really is going on versus what, you know, what the story I tell myself is. And, and that's a really, I mean, there are a lot of resources out there that, you know, especially in these times and, and again, like I said, I'm very hopeful because there's a lot of people that are engaged right now and we can move the needle further down. I think it's always a positive. And the one thing that, um, you know, every person of color is that, uh, the, every person of color um, uh, experience is that no matter your station in life, no matter your station, no matter your successes. I mean, I was listening to Tyler Perry talk about this yesterday too you're still a black person. You're still a person of color. And, and that means that um, when the police stops you while you're driving, okay, uh, you're driving a fancy car, um, the, the initial thought process is not that you, oh, there goes a, an educated person who, you know, has uh, uh, made some successes in driving a fancy car. Their first thought is that maybe you stole the car. <laughs> or maybe, um, uh, you know, that's the first thought that comes to their head. And for a white person that gets stopped by the police, the, the last thing on their head is like, that they think is not gonna be, oh, I might die from this. They're probably thinking, how do I get out of this ticket? 
And meanwhile, the black person is thinking, hmm, this might go all wrong and I might not get home. And that's what they think about every day that their white colleagues don't even have to think about. So again, so those are some of the stresses that our residents face. Uh, so when a, a resident of color is struggling, there are other things that are involved and we should always think about that. And that's, uh, especially as program directors, we should be encouraged to think about that. I personally make a concerted effort to always think about it, and not only for my underrepresented minority residents, but for every resident, because we all have other things. Our life doesn't only revolve around medicine. There are other things in our lives that also impact our performance. Okay, I want to thank you all for a really wonderful conversation. Thank you, Val, for being our guest on today's podcast. Just as a summary uh, of the things that we've talked about, I think a couple main points. One, speak up. If you see or witness um, a, a, a microaggression or a macroaggression, you, you have to speak up and be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to make mistakes, but inaction is not okay. And um, we have to speak up. The second is Val's fantastic point about white privilege and that it equals a benefit of a doubt that a person of color doesn't get as many chances um, or isn't given the same perspective when you know they're struggling in a situation as a, as a white person might be. And so that benefit of the doubt really confers a lot of the privilege that we see. The next is that institutions need to mandate this training and education for our faculty. Um, I don't, we can't expect changes in our um, curriculum or in our learners unless our faculty are, are taught and, and um, educated on how to have these conversations. So um, institutions really need to require these things, leadership needs to require these things, and then faculty have to be willing to show up uh, and be uncomfortable and engage in these conversations. And lastly, we all have biases, whether we know it or not, um, we all have them. And, it takes self-reflection, being willing to reflect on the biases that we carry. And also we need to be willing to actively disrupt all the biases that we have, um, both in our professional worlds and our personal worlds um, and, and um, across all aspects. So um, thank you again to everybody. I really hope that you know in 2023, we're not having another article that was just published talking about the same thing but I appreciate you all coming and having these conversations that aren't easy um, and sharing your thoughts and experiences. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.